Hey, my name is Matt Randall. I'm at the Greenwood campus, the broadcast campus fan club in that corner. Uh, but here's what's awesome. We're at a campus weekend at Emmanuel in the middle of a series, which means the Greenwood campus, our broadcast campus, our online campus, good morning to you, including our microsites and a brand new microsite happening this weekend at Purdue University. Boiler up, we'll welcome you. I'm an IUPUI Jaguar, so I can root for whoever I want. So this week it's go Boilers. All right. Uh, no, but I want to just invite you into uh, the middle of a series that we're in called Better Lovers. And you've been waiting for the romance weekend. And guess what? It's not this weekend either. <laughs> nope. Uh, but we, uh, we, I've been talking in this series about how, become, how we should be becoming better lovers of some of the more difficult people in our lives. In fact, if you're looking for a little extra reading, Danny has recommended uh, that we join him in reading Everybody Always, a book by Bob Goff about very much the same thing we're talking about in this series. The subtitle is Becoming Love in a World Full of Setbacks and Difficult People, uh, which I have lots of those in my life, don't know about you. Uh, but that's the series that we are in, and we've been talking about this idea that if you look at the world around us, well, there's just some things that aren't going very well. Uh, we're just not loving people well in our world. In fact, sex trafficking is on the rise in our world today. Uh, people, uh, depression is on its rise, and addictions are on the rise to opioids and other substances. We have classrooms that are dominated by bullying and social media that's dominated by even worse. And so in the middle of that world, we can translate Jesus and his teachings a little bit differently. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives us a picture of the kind of world that describes what I'm talking about. Here's what he says. He'll say, he says that at a time there will be sin rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. And I don't know about you, but there are definitely areas of our culture, our society and areas of our own lives in which, well, love just grows cold. And even in the midst of that, Jesus gives us help. He gives us encouragement. He gives us instruction. And here's what Jesus says we should be doing in John chapter 15, verse 17. Jesus says, even in the midst of this kind of world, this is my command. Now, anytime we see the word command, we should perk up because Jesus is about to say something, well, critical to what it means to follow Jesus. And I want you to say it with me. His command is simply this. We should love each other. Say it again. Love each other. Yeah, but Jesus, the people are rude. Like people are mean. Like I've been hurt by people, let alone all the people in my life that I disagree with that literally not one idea they have is right. And if those are any of the excuses that you're thinking about right now, I would encourage you to check out our lead pastor, Danny Anderson's previous two talks in this series about how do we love people that have hurt us? How do we become better lovers of people that we disagree with or that we think are wrong about everything? And just a little nugget about our lead pastor, Danny, before we really jump in today. See, it's a privilege for me to be on stage and share a little bit of me and what our team has worked on for this week. But I want you to know this about our lead pastor, that he's a guy who does what he says we should do from this platform. So this weekend, he's spending with Jackie a little bit of time away to, uh, to spend time on their marriage uh, and just some rest from leading the thousands of us that are part of Emmanuel. And if you're not praying for your lead pastor, my hope is, is that you will do that because there's nothing more powerful that you can do for the growth of this church. And surprise, we're a growing church. Anybody else excited about that? So those of you watching at Purdue today, I want to say thank you. Thank you for jumping into the Emmanuel family and being part of our growing church. 
Um, that's exciting. That's just something that's on my heart, and it's a privilege to share in his place this week. But let's get to it, shall we? Let's build on what Pastor Danny has talked about these previous two weeks. There's a whole other category of people that we have to become better lovers of. Here they are, selfish people. We have to become better lovers of selfish people. Now, here's the thing. People are selfish, aren't they? They're selfish with their attitude. They're selfish with their time and their effort. You ever ask somebody to help you move? And certainly lots of us are selfish with our money. It's my money. I worked hard for it. How dare you ask me to give you some? We're sel- people are selfish about all different kinds of things. In fact, the moment that we've talked about selfish people, you've already thought of people in your lives. And in fact, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, well, he says what we believe and how we act and that we wish others would take more seriously. Here's what he said. He said, you know, don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. And right now, those people that you're thinking about, if you haven't already elbowed them because they're sitting next to you and you think that they're selfish and that they should pay attention, you're thinking about them in your own life. And, you know, if we're honest, most of the time we, we actually behave differently to selfish people. We justify our behavior. We justify our actions in how we treat the people in our lives that we view as selfish. And at the simplest way, it's that we create a little bit of distance. I don't know if you've got a family member who's a little crazy or their ideas are terrible or they've hurt you in some way, but our, our, our first instinct is to probably create a little bit of distance. Sometimes it even leads to frustration in a moment where someone has been selfish and it's hurt us or impacted our lives. Sometimes that even goes to anger. It turns outwardly and we either get in a fight or we or we challenge the people uh, rudely or aggressively in our lives, sometimes it actually leads to to physical harm. But you see, I think Christians, and I'm talking to you right now, talking to me right now, sometimes we just respond with gossip. You're in a marriage and your husband or your wife does something and your first instinct is to run to your friends and, and tell a man, you would not believe what she did yesterday. She was this and she did that. And it's like, she's so selfish all the time. Or ladies, you run to your girlfriends and can you believe what he did to me? Can you believe how he handed that money and bought that boat? Can you believe he's hunting again? I don't know, whatever your thing is. (laughs) That one hit a nerve here in the room. I don't, I don't know. Um, But here's the thing, like we, we justify that behavior. We, we gossip. Guess what? That's a sin, everybody. That is not okay in Jesus' eyes. So we have to figure out that we have, we have selfish behaviors that we justify ourselves. And how do we go about loving people better that we view are selfish? That's the question we're answering today. It's this. How do we love those people better? And here's what I love about, about what we do as a church. Each and every week, we're going to try to be practical. We could read seven verses of scripture and say, have a great day. Or we could get practical with how do we become better lovers of selfish people. So let's jump in. Here's the thing. The first primary thing we have to do is to remember that we are selfish too. Say it with me now. Remember that you are selfish too. I'm actually talking about you, not me, okay? I mean, yes, I'm selfish too, but this is an I statement. Look, at, listen, we're selfish too. And, you know, as we were preparing this week, Brent and Aaron and I, we were, we were trying to put together something and, and God just put something like right in front of me about understanding how I'm selfish. And, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm selfish with my Fridays. Now, 
here at Emmanuel, in particular at the Broadcast Campus, our Greenwood Campus, uh, we're a six-day-a-week operation. So Monday through Thursday and then Saturday and Sunday, which means that Fridays are our Sabbath. And I'm grateful that we have a leader in Pastor Danny who takes that seriously and, and basically encourages all of us not to work on Friday, to have a Sabbath built into our lives. And so it's a day of the week. I had to learn how Fridays, uh, how to take a Friday off. It was sort of weird coming from the outside world. But you know, my Fridays don't look a lot different than yours. I wake up in the morning and I start thinking about that list of things that I need to accomplish for the day. Sure, it's a day off, but we also have a home and a kiddo. And well, one of those things I have to think through is getting my child on the bus. So uh, dads, grandpas, uncles, brothers, whatever, listen to me and be impressed. For more than 100 days this school year, I have gotten my kindergartner on the bus without missing it one time. This is... It's like there should be medals for that. Um, now, here's the serious part, though. I've gotten him on the bus every single day, partly out of fear because of you moms and dads and guardians who have driven the fear in me that the, uh, the car rider line is like a nightmare experience. And so it's par partly, um, it's part like self-preservation and peer pressure that gets my kid on the bus every morning. But yeah, I succeed in that. And, and while well, I told you about that list of things that you work through, that I work through in my mind about what needs to be done on a day off. And so here's what happens. I get, uh, get my kid on the bus. I get back into the, the garage. I shut the door because I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm kidding. No. Uh, but I shut the garage door and I walk into the house and immediately it's just, all right, let's get to that list. So it's like, okay, we're going to do, we're going to throw a load in the washer so that the dryer can be loaded. Then we can do the other washer load so my wife doesn't have to do it later. Then there's dishes that are left over. Uh, Thursday nights are kind of like Friday nights for our family. So uh, sometimes we'll have people over, so I'm cleaning up the dishes, I'm loading that dishwasher, getting that thing going. And you know, we have hard floors in our house, which equals dust and all kinds of fun stuff. So I'm sweeping the floors up a little. No, I don't. I don't do any of that. <laughs> sometimes I don't do any of that. Because it's my day off. So sometimes I walk in, I, well, I get into the garage, I shut that garage door, I open the door back into the house, still in my pajamas. I have not gotten out of the car to get my kid on the bus. I just do that little wave thing out the window to the bus driver. <laughs> I sit down with my second cup of coffee, my favorite show. Uh, I'm a nerd, so it's Star Trek. comes on Thursday night, so I watch it Friday mornings. That's my thing, okay? It's my day off, remember? So I'm drinking my coffee, watching my show, get done with that, and then I think, you know, my wife doesn't really like going to the movies very much, so we don't see a lot in person. So darn it, I'm going to watch that man movie that she doesn't want to have anything to do with. So I watched that movie, then I'm approaching lunchtime and I'm sitting here thinking, you know what it sounds good as a two pound Qdoba burrito. So I'll, get go, I'll go, I'll have actual pants on at that point. So I'll go out and I'll get my burrito. I bring it home. We live across the street, super easy. And then I'm thinking, you know, I really could be productive with the afternoon at least. And then I'm not. And so uh, I'll either watch another show, I'll play some video games because I'm a 36 year old man. And uh, after that, it's about, it's about maybe two, no, 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 it's 2.26 p.m. At which point I realized that my wife is home in an hour and 34 minutes, which is just enough time to not do anything for a whole nother hour. So at 3.26, now husbands, you know where I'm at right now, so pay attention. At 3.26 p.m., it's four minutes that went from when my wife gets off home or gets off from work and will call me to let me know she's on the way home. So it's just enough time to throw something in the washer because you know what happens, 36 minutes before she gets home is just enough time for the washer to get done, throw it in the dryer, throw another load in the washer to make it look like I've been doing laundry all day. 
At that point, I run to the, I, I've loaded the washer and I'm running in front of the sink. So I'm in front of the sink right now, washing the pot that can't go in the dishwasher or we ruin it and we have to buy a new one. So then I'm loading the dishwasher. It starts to go, but not at the same time as the washer, you know, cause you gotta watch out for that. And so everything's running. Then I'm thinking about the floors. I usually don't get too excited about the floors. And so then I'm tidying, you know what I mean? Like cleaning without really cleaning. So 34 minutes later, my wife walks in the door cause she has picked my kid up from the bus stop and that sweat is running down my forehead. Hey, babe, how are you? I was working on the house, no big deal. <laughs> at which point it might look like I've been working in the house all day. Now I don't lie and fake it because she pretty much knows the drill at this point, but for most of that time I'm home alone, there are days where I'm just purely selfish. And this week God just reminded me that, listen, the next time I'm tempted to think of somebody else as being selfish, I have to remember that I am selfish too. And all I'm doing right there is what Jesus said, but completely by accident and conviction. And here's what he said in Luke chapter six, when we're tempted, when we're tempted to draw distinction between us and the selfishness of others. Here's what Jesus says. He says, hey, why worry about the speck of selfishness in your friend's eye when you have a giant log of the world's all about me in your own eye? Jesus says, hey, the first thing you should do when you're tempted to draw a distinction between the sin or some other thing in somebody else's life is to remember that you're no different than them. Paul would go on to double down in this later on in the New Testament. Here's what Paul says about when we're tempted to do that as well. He says, I give you a warning. Anytime we see warning, just like command, we should perk up and pay attention because something important is about to be said. Paul says, don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us, measuring ourselves by the standard of Jesus himself. So the next time you're tempted to look at someone as being selfish and somehow different than you, our first and primary step in, in the words of renowned philosopher and comedian John Christ is simply this, check your heart, check yourself. So how do we become better lovers of selfish people? First and primarily, we have to remember that we're selfish ourselves. Building on that, because what that does is help to, it helps us build a little bit of humility, some understanding, and some empathy with the people in our lives. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing in your notes this week is this. Unselfish living is a learned behavior. It is a learned behavior. We have to learn how to become unselfish. And so do the people in our lives. And if you don't believe me, this week, uh, Brent and Aaron and I, as we were chewing through things uh, that we thought were valuable, uh, Brent had this brilliant idea. He said, you know, it just makes me think of the word mine. Like we kind of looked at him and, and he said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's about mine. Now, Brent's raising uh, two little kiddos along with two older kiddos right now. And he, it's just brilliant. And, and if you don't believe me, go back to our toddler room uh, in any given children's ministry weekend, and this will be true for you. As moms and dads, we raise our children and we, sometimes we challenge between mom and dad. Two words, the first two words you want your kids to say are what? Mama or mommy or dada or daddy. Now I'm here to tell you that I won in my household. <laughs> Not only that, I got a bonus word. I got, hi dada, it was awesome, it's on video. <laughs> now he said mommy later on. But we teach them that, right? Now, if you've raised a kid, maybe you're a guardian or a grandparent or an aunt and uncle raising some kids right now, do we teach them mine? We don't. We don't teach them to be selfish. We don't teach them that when someone else is playing with a, a toy that's not theirs, that their responsibility is to reach out and grab it and say, mine. But somehow they learn that. 
in community with other kids, they, they easily learn the selfish behavior. That's my toy. And then as kids get a little older, it's like, no, 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 that's my iPad. Or no, 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 that's, it's my video game time. And then we as adults, we think that we outgrow that, right? Like we think that somehow maturing in age takes that out of us. And it doesn't. We just change the names of the things that we say are mine or ours. It's, that's my car. Do that to your mom's car. That's my house. This is my house. And if we're honest with some of us grown men in the room, that's my video game time. That's my Fridays. We just change the names of the things that we're selfish about and we claim it on our own. And, you know, this struck me this week, and, and uh, even though it's embarrassing, the team encouraged me to share it with all of you. No big deal. We're friends. And so I'm going to share with you how this was real in my own marriage. You see, growing up, I had a dad that uh, built computers back in the late 80s and early 90s, before a lot of people were doing that. And so I got to learn along with him how to build those sorts of things, which means I played computer games growing up. And as a teenager, and then even going into college, I developed a couple of friendships with some guys. And what that would mean is that every once in a while, we would get together, gather our stuff, go to uh, each other's houses, our mom's houses, and we'd set up all of our stuff at a kitchen table or in a living room, and we would just have fun gaming for three, four, five, 14 hours. And so, <laughs> as a bachelor, it, you know, you get to kind of direct that on your own. And, and, you know, when I got married, not a lot of that changed. Uh, my wife and I were blessed to have a two-bedroom apartment as our first uh, place to live. And uh, what, that mean, what that meant was is we had a whole room separate other than our bedroom, um, which is where our marriage happens, and then the living room where we live, and the kitchen where we eat stuff. And so we had a whole separate other room that I could invite my friends over that we could close the door and we could play some video games. And it was so serious that I built a bedesk. Now, you're probably wondering right now, Matt, what's a bedesk? It's pretty much the idea I should have sold to Ikea, uh, to be rich. And uh, I'm about to tell some Purdue engineering students a really good idea. So trademark Matt Randall 2019. Um, but here's the thing. I built, well, I'm just going to show it to you. This is a bedesk, ladies and gentlemen. This is a twin bed frame, the exact size of a twin mattress that when you fold it up with the handles that I attach to it, you can fold out a repurposed desktop. That's a hipster thing. We repurpose things. And so you fold it out, it's supported underneath with chains to the side as well because monitors were heavy back then. And then uh, you have legs that fold out from the side that are attached so that nothing can tear this thing down. Ladies and gentlemen, your friend, your bro can game right across the room from you at your own desk. This is a bedesk. Are you not impressed? I told you I was an IUPUI student. I spent one year of C plus energy in the Purdue Engineering School. Liberal arts after that, all my friends thought I dropped out of college. It's okay. <laughs> so, but here's the thing. Like, my friends would come over. One guy would set up here. I would set up over here. And then somebody else would figure out some other space. And here's what's cool about these two friends. One, that we're still friends today. We're really tight. One of them is a little extra gassy. It's, he's sort of legendary for that. Um, not just like the annoying, like, oh, no, no, it was a problem. <laughs> so when they came over, like, it was a thing. In the first couple uh, months of my marriage, this happened a couple of times, pr probably two or three times over three or four months. And then something happened. My wife, during the middle of a week or whatever it was, she, she approached me and she said, you know, I've just really been thinking and, you know, I haven't really said anything yet, but when your guys come over and, and you guys sort of like take over the apartment, 
it sort of makes me feel like I'm not welcome in my own home. And, and then I started to process, and, and, and she was gentle, and she was sharing with me how I probably didn't seek her input on when they would come over as much as she would like, maybe to give her an opportunity to plan something with the girls or whatever it was. And that when we were there, we were sort of obnoxious and we were sort of loud, and then there was the gassy one. But she just approached me in a way that helped me learn that the behavior that I was exhibiting was selfish and that it hurt her. So what happens when we have selfish people in our lives? Well, my wife was just owning it. She understood that she wasn't perfect. She didn't barge in at the time and create a fight about it or barge in in front of my friends and embarrass me. She, she knew that it was learned behavior, so she took an opportunity to help me grow in our marriage. Here's what she did. The next point in your notes. She gently confronted the selfishness. Sometimes you will have a relationship, some influence with the person that's being selfish, and you'll have an opportunity to gently confront the selfishness. And all my wife was doing is, is really just emulating a piece for Matthew chapter 18, so which pretty much proves that my wife is approximately 10 years more spiritually mature than me. And in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus actually tells us right to our face, when we have a conflict with another believer, this is how we deal with it. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if your brother or your sister sins against you, this is a brother or sister in the faith, go and tell them their fault between you and them alone. If they listen to you, you have gained them. You have gained your brother or your sister. In some translations, this word gained actually is translated as won. Like you have won a person back by gently confronting something in their life that has an impact on you. And you know what's tough is that we don't often do that. We've already talked that, and sometimes we Christians, we're the best at this. That we create that distance, we push that unselfish person, or that put that selfish person away, or we gossip about them, or we tear them down, or sometimes we're even as selfish as justifying our own selfish behavior to another person because of what they have done. And what Jesus says is, no, 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 it's a lot simpler than that. When this happens, if you have the influence with someone, if you have a relationship with that person, you gently approach them and give them an opportunity to learn how their behavior is impacting you. And what my wife did, like I said, she didn't barge in to my friends and embarrass me. She didn't wait for some other argument to then bring this thing up about how I was selfish. Oh yeah, well, you just have your buddies over whenever you want and you just trash this apartment and think it's okay. No, 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 no. She waited until there wasn't conflict. And she gave me an opportunity to change. When we think about how we're supposed to become better lovers of selfish people, we first have to check our own hearts, understand that we're selfish and we have that in our own life as well. And then we have to understand, okay, I've had to learn to be unselfish. I've had to have people in my life point that out for me along the way. And then if I have this sort of relationship with someone that, well, I have influence and they can trust what I say is honest and true, I can gently confront it. That's how we become better lovers of selfish people. Now, right now, you might be thinking about someone, maybe a Facebook friend or a Twitter follower or someone who's just plain dead wrong about everything in the world, and you want to go confront them on social media. Now, students and everybody else, do not do that. Do not do that because you don't have the influence or the relationship to accomplish what Jesus expects out of us. So the first two of those three steps are always going to be available to you. Introspection. 
Understanding that it's learned behavior. That builds empathy and understanding in us. But we left the last one this week on purpose because you will always have an opportunity to model unselfishness. You will always have the opportunity to model unselfishness yourself. And here's the thing. When we do that, all we're doing is emulating our Savior. All we're doing is just copying in the footsteps of Jesus. And there's this incredible, incredible story in the, in the book of John where we see Jesus do this. Let me set the scene a little bit for you. So Jesus and his friends would travel from town to town where Jesus would perform miracles. He would, he would teach. And we see that all throughout the New Testament. But when he would go to these towns, well, he has to sleep just like you and me. And so usually someone from the town will host them in their home. So Jesus and his buddies, they go into town, they go into a home at the end of the day. And they come into the house and they recline at the table and they get ready to eat. Now back then, the roads were made of dirt and everybody wore some sandal-like things. And so their feet were just plain dirty. Now I don't know about you, but if someone walks in with mud all over their boots, are you allowing them to track that through your entire house? The answer is no. In this case, there was a servant almost always. And that job of that servant was simply to wash the feet of the guests that entered the home. And Jesus was a pretty important guest, so there should have been somebody there ready to do that, but there wasn't. And I can just imagine the disciples bickering about how dare they not have a servant ready for us. But Jesus does something different. He notices that a job needs to be done. Well, and here's what he does. He gets up from the table, he took off his robe and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And he poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. And you know, I... We don't have time to tear apart the whole story, but I can just imagine the disciples at this moment. And they're probably thinking something like, Jesus, what are you doing? Well, seriously, you're a rabbi. Like, you're the teacher. Like, you're the important one. What are you doing? Like, yes, I have two days worth of road jam between my toes, but that's not your job. I can just imagine the, the indignant response. And yet Jesus's actions speak it. A job needs to be done, and well, I can do that. I can be selfless enough to do that. And a little later in verse 15, Jesus tells us why he would do that in the first place. This is what he says. He says, I've given you, and say it with me, an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. You know, we put some steps in front of you, but we will always be able to respond to the selfish people in our lives with a little bit of unselfishness on our own. Some people in our lives don't need more instruction or more chastising from the Christian in their life. Some people, they don't need to be pushed away. They don't need to be gossiped about. Some people simply need an example to follow. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, I'm betting, I'm betting there's someone in your life that when I talk about this and I talk about the behavior of Jesus, that there's some person in your life that has done this for you. That instead of pushing you away, has used, used an opportunity, a relationship to help lift you up and encourage you. To give you a, a way forward, to get a little less selfish yourself. And, and this is incredibly practical. If you're a student and you're watching with us today, listen, students, I'm right to you right now. If at the end of a day, your family gets done with dinner or whatever it is, and, and you choose to do the dishes so that your mom doesn't have to, 
Or you take the trash out because it's usually your brother's job, but you've got an extra few minutes and you do it just so that he doesn't have to. There's a a small thing that you can fix or find or help another family member out and you choose to do that so that your parents don't have to. As a student, if you ever get to a place where you can be doing things so that your parents or someone else doesn't have to, you're winning. You're modeling Jesus. If you're kind and gentle to the kid in your classroom whose usual response is maybe some bullying or aggressiveness, you're winning. You're showing them an example to follow. For those of us that work maybe four or five days a week, maybe you stay at home and you gather with other uh, moms or dads or wherever your circle of influence is, it's, it's practical for us too. It's that when that coworker next to you is part of a group project and, and well, everybody can get equal credit, but you decide to lift them up instead of taking your own credit. You're working on a team and the leader of a team is pushing you on a project and the last one didn't go very well, but in the presence of others, you're lifting and encouraging that leader. You're getting people on the same page as opposed to driving distinctions between you. It makes the team a little bit better. In your marriage, if your response to selfish behavior looked a little bit like my wife's and a little less like pushing away or justifying our own selfishness. And well, my guess is that would improve your marriage. And there are ways that we can do this very simply in our lives. Here's my question to you this week. We always like to end with the question, who are the selfish people in your life that you need to love better? My hope is, is that you'll be writing the name of someone down that's in your mind right now. It's a brother with a behavior that is a little bit selfish and you've pushed away or created distance from. It's a classmate, like I already talked about, that, that just needs a little extra love. In our own homes, when when a broken marriage or a weak marriage gets stronger or put back together, that's a generational changing sort of thing. It is a family tree changing thing when a marriage can get this stuff right. You know, I get most excited about what would happen if we, the people of Emmanuel, decided that we would, we would get this right. That we would take the practical things that we're teaching and that we're encouraging you on each week and put it into practice. And I could tell you what it would look like. That broken marriage that I talked about, this is a place where they come to be encouraged to grow in their relationship. That they're welcome to come in and sit next to us, that we don't have to have that marriage all put back together and that we might even be willing to seek some help. That's the kind of church that we become. It's about the addict that's next door to us, secretly struggling in addiction to heroin to opiates or to whatever it is. We become a church that's open and welcoming and we bring those people in and say, sit next to us, you're just like me, let's get better. It's about the the young woman that struggles with her sexuality. And every time that she thinks about coming to church, all she thinks of are the people in her life that say they follow Jesus, but judge her at every instance. It's about becoming a church where she feels welcome to come in and sit right down next to us. Where she can be challenged to grow in what Jesus says about her, that her life is not defined by any other value than what Jesus says, that you are a child of God. 
It's where we break down the distinctions of those people around us and we invite them in and understand that we're just like them. And it's in that, it's, it, it's in becoming a church like that, becoming a people like that, that we look at Romans 5, 8, and we've done that in this series. And here are Paul's words that help us understand the kind of Jesus that we follow. Paul says this, he says, but God showed us his great love by sending Christ to die for us while we were selfish, while we were on our own path trying to fix all of our problems in our life, while we were still dealing with those destructive behaviors that may or may not destroy our marriage, while we were still wrestling with how to lead that student onto the right path. You see, Jesus didn't wait for us to figure it all out. He didn't wait for us to live a purely selfless life before he decided to invite us in. And in fact, if you're here today, maybe you've accepted an invitation or seven invitations and you've been here for a while. And you're thinking through that you haven't taken a step in a relationship with Jesus because you still got that area of your life to figure out. You still gotta get this stuff put together before you can approach him. I'm here to tell you, that's not the Jesus that we serve. When Jesus knew he was on the way to the cross, he knew that he was gonna take the weight of the entire world's sin upon his shoulders. He did that knowing that you would be selfish. He did that knowing that you would be an addict. He did that knowing that you would be struggling to figure out how do I love the person next to me? And so today in this moment, he's there. He's not waiting for you to figure it out. And if you're in a place where you haven't yet stepped into a relationship with Jesus, I'm telling you that he's there. He's open to you in the middle of whatever it is that you're dealing with. And it starts with a conversation between you and him. And I'm gonna pray a prayer in a minute. And if my words can be helpful for you, I hope that you'll use them on your own to step into a relationship, to trust Jesus for the first time. And for the rest of us, my guarantee to you is this, there is someone in the room you are in right now who is questioning stepping into that relationship for the first time and who's ready to open a door to a savior that shows them hope and joy and peace as an overwhelming dominant idea in their lives. And so we should be praying for those open hearts right now. Can we all bow our heads? If you're ready to step into trusting Jesus, say something like this, say, Jesus, I trust you today. I know that you died for me. And even though I don't have it all together, even though I still struggle, I know that you're there. So Jesus, I ask you for your forgiveness. I know that when you walked out of that grave, you gave me a path to hope. So I step onto that path today. I thank you for giving everything up for me. So as I trust you, May you show me the abundant life that you promise. And I promise to stay with you on that path. I trust you, Jesus, today.
And Jesus, it's in your name that I ask these things. And we all said, amen. Now I'm about to get fired up because I know that I'm only joining the angels in heaven where one soul makes a decision to step into a relationship with Christ. So y'all better join me in saying, welcome to the family. That we honor your brave decisions today to step into a relationship with Christ. Now we as a church will not leave you hanging when you make a decision for Christ. And if you're joining us at our brand new Purdue micro site, I wanna tell you the leaders are in the room that you can chat with and they'll do our, your best to connect uh, they'll do their best to connect you to us. And we're gonna put a New Believers New Testament in your hands because there's nothing more powerful in the first steps with Christ than reading what he says about you and how valuable and loved you are. Now, if you're anywhere else, if you're joining us online this morning, a whole team is ready for you. All you have to do is click a link telling us that you've accepted Christ and Ronika and her team will put one of these in your hands this week. Now, for those of us joining us here at the broadcast campus, if you took a step into a relationship with Christ today, I've got friends at the back right and back left corners of our auditorium and they would love to do the same for you. Allow us to put a free Bible in your hands if you've accepted Christ today and begin reading and seeing what he says about you. And we'll also start a conversation with you about how we can partner with you in your journey with Christ. Now listen, I get, I'm always tired after these things because I try to give you everything that's in my heart. And I want you to know something that this is not something where I'm up here preaching from an ivory tower. In my life this week, God has pointed people out that I've created distance from. I hope he has for you too. So do not let this just stay this weekend. On your way home, talk to the people in your car about what this means for you in your life.